This episode is brought to you by Direct Drilling, a locally owned family drilling company based in Kununurra, servicing the Kimberley and the Northern Territory. All drillers are nationally licensed with the Australian Drilling Industry Association, ensuring best practice, the protection of water resources and guaranteeing the life of the bore. Find out more at directdrill.com.au. Listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. This podcast is brought to you by Ariat Australia, the perfect choice for the tough jobs. Ariat boots and clothing work hard, look good, and are so comfortable there's never a need to slow down. Visit ariat.com.au today. In last week's episode, Debbie Dowden shared the story of how she found herself living a life she'd never planned on. But at the same time, it seemed like everything in her life had been leading her there. That life was centred around her new husband's family sheep station in Outback WA, a vast property that had been in the family for over a century, where everyone knew their roles and had the skills to do the job. Everyone but Debbie. So, Debbie began to navigate her new life, trying to find her place within her new family, home and business. And find her place she did. Debbie is a seasoned professional when it comes to running that same vast family property and in 2022 she was named as a state finalist for the Rural Woman of the Year Award. In this episode Debbie shares how she found not just her place but also her purpose. To start this episode we went back to Debbie's earliest memories of moving out to Chalice Station. One of the things that, that I think of straight away is that we didn't have any air conditioning. I had a gas fridge. So in summertime, the freezer of the gas fridge might keep my milk cold. And the coming into this intense heat with no air conditioning was physically overwhelming. It was really tough. That then had to combine with the fact that I'm marrying a man whose family have been running this property for five generations and I really didn't have a lot of use for the business apart from being a labourer. You know, I could ride a motorbike. That was about it. But apart from my occasional physical labour, I didn't have a really deep understanding of the business and I didn't have any skills that I could really contribute that this family didn't already have. Can you run us through a snapshot of what your life in what you left behind in Perth, what it was like before you came to Chala? Well, I lived in my – so I owned my own home and I had this pretty good career that was starting to really develop some legs and – 
you know, you had some dreams about where it could go. And I really loved the aviation industry because all the people in aviation are so nice. So I was really um, quite content down there. And I felt like I was certainly not high flying, but, you know, living quite an extraordinary life. And then coming to here and the life here is still extraordinary, but in such a different way that it took a major adjustment for me. It did take me a few years to adjust and it wasn't um, an instant adjustment and then, oh, yeah, this is good, I'm fine now. So I started doing things like I became the secretary of the Mount Magnet Race Club and I could funnel a lot of my energy and passion into that because I love horse racing and I can organize things. So that's where a lot of my time went. And I had a lot of these projects that I could get my teeth into that didn't necessarily associate with this business here on the station, but it was still being part of the community and still using some of my skill set here in, in the remote area of Mount Magnet. Did you have, I suppose, like, did you see light at the end of the tunnel? Because like you said, you had, I suppose, this real level of independence and this career that, like a career path that you're on down south. And when you come here, there wasn't that necessarily that, that same opportunity for you. Um, and I'm just thinking of how many people listening will relate to this when they've moved somewhere for love, whether it's to a farm or a station or just moved anywhere and, you know, sacrifices are made and it, it can take time before you find where you fit and not just where you fit, but also to kind of get back what you, what you left behind. It's taken me a really long time to come to that point. And I think that I am, um, you know, having children and being a, a mum and teaching on School of the Air was a real focus for my energies as well. And I loved a lot of the time on School of the Air. And I remember I was there when my first daughter clicked with reading. I, I, I was actually there at that real pivotal moment in her life. So it's taken a quite a long time before I could actually feel as though I could make an equal or a reasonable contribution to the business. It was a long transition. That just sounds tough, to be honest. Oh, look, I, I really have never looked at it as being a tough time. It's just a different time. And I was able to bring my horse up here and have a lot of adventures out on the station. You know, I'd, I'd go out mustering every time and I'd help with shearing time and you know the kids would you'd get all the wool bales stacked up and the kids would have a whale of a time playing on the wool bales so it it was just different and it I it was tough in the sense that um, physically tough because of the no air conditioning and the physical heat that we had to put up with um, but we were really happy and it, it just when you've got a really good relationship a happy marriage and and lovely children then the other goals that you had in life are not as important to you anymore because you realize that what you've got now is is really special. And, you know, I, I know I'm very privileged to live on a property like this. And it's a beautiful place to live. We've got so many opportunities. We taught the kids to water ski here, for goodness sake. When it rains, we get enough. We've got a boat in the shed. We get enough water to go water skiing. And it's a great social life. It's a brilliant community. So, yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't really lose everything. I gained more than I lost. I think that's a very incredible way to look at it. And I suppose the way you think about things in your mindset is going to have a massive impact on, on the whole experience and what you make of it. 
I think that you, yeah, you do in a sense create your own reality with the way you think about things. And I am really quite conscious of the fact that I could um, go one way or another from time to time. And when something appears to be all gloom and doom, if you wait it out, if you sit out and wait for a while, then you can actually see the positives and you can look at the opportunities that a situation prevents, presents you rather than looking at the downside of it. And that's sort of what's happened with our business over these last 20 years or so with all the wild dogs coming into the area. It seemed like such a terrible thing to happen to us. It completely devastated our business. But now we're on the other end of it. It was actually, we got through it and it's, Life is great. We're having a, a great time running cattle here. I'd say, I suppose what that's making me think of is that it's not so much about, you know, thinking there's light at the end of the tunnel and just trying to get through. It's making sure that while you're in said tunnel or whatever other analogy you want to use, that you're actually making the most of it as you're in it, no matter what it is. Yeah, you, you do. You look for opportunities all the time. And sometimes it, it has been hard slog where you just – one day at a time, particularly with School of the Air. There was a lot of one day at a time. I've just take if, if I look too far ahead, it just gets overwhelming. So I'll take one day at a time. And then other times you start looking far ahead and you go, Oh, this is fantastic. There's so many opportunities here. And so we're not doing this anymore, but why don't we try this? Oh, you know, we should, we should have a go at this. And because we're running our own business here and we can make all of the decisions, you create your own destiny, you create your own luck. Speaking of creating your own destiny, you did leave behind, I don't want to keep focusing on all the things you left behind, but you know, you're, you were, you had a pilot's license and you love to fly. When was the next time you were able to try and weave that back into your life after moving up here? Well, Ashley came down to do his license with the intention of becoming a mustering pilot. So, when I moved up here with Ash, it didn't take us that long before we took the plunge and bought our own aeroplane and set up as an aerial mastering business. So huge change, but great times. We, we were running three or four aircraft and we had three or four pilots employed and we were flying 10,000 hours a year. And I was the operations manager coordinating all of the stations and the pilots and the aeroplanes and the maintenance and, and everything. And it was, Really good times to be involved, still really heavily involved in the aviation industry, but from a small business owner perspective. And I learned so much about flying that you don't learn at the Aero Club because it's very theoretical and a controlled environment at a place like the Aero Club where there's set procedures. But when you run your own aviation business, you, you just don't, don't know what's around the corner and you've got to be quite agile and you've got to adapt and take opportunities and, and, and just, it's it's really exciting and it was a whole new area of aviation that I, I'm really grateful I had a, an opportunity to be involved in. I know you did a gap year as a Jillaroo up in the Pilbara on Balfour Down Station, but all the flying that you did at the Aero Club with your licence and then when you were a flight theory instructor, that was all – there was nothing to do with livestock or mustering or anything like that. When you guys started this business, did you ever – jump up in the sky and have a crack at rounding up some sheep? Oh, you know, I would, yeah, I would 
not myself because I would have to be qualified to do that, but I'd sometimes sit with Ashley and try and spot sheep. Oh my goodness, how hard is that? When you're in the aeroplane, it takes ages to, for you to get your eye in. And so you're flying along and, and Ashley would say, oh, I see that mob down there. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I can see them. <laughs> and I really couldn't. And it, it's so much skill involved with being the pilot in command for a mustering crew. And every now and then I thought, oh, I should do that. I have a go, but I thought I'm just, it's so hard to do it. And I, I would take me such a long time to get to the skill level that Ashley's at. And I've got more important things to do, like running this schoolroom and running the, running the show here. It, and even now, sometimes I think it might be nice to have a go. I just think, no, it's too hard. I can't do it. <laughs> I can totally relate to that. I remember going up the first time I went up in a fixed swing plane. And they're like, oh yeah, check out those ho- those horses there. And I was like, what horses? And then it's not until they pretty much were like right on them. And it was a pretty fast and sharp descent. And I've learned I can I can handle a helicopter, not not so much an aeroplane. Uh, but you know, just pointing out things. And I'm like, no. And then I and then I started to think, am I blind? Like I don't know how these people see them. And and I get you know maybe if you have a big mob of cattle or sheep somewhere, but. There can be they're in pairs of one and two. They hide under bushes. Like, what do you? I'm like, do you secretly have reflective things on them, and you're just waiting for the light to hit, and you see a glint in the landscape? Because I don't know how else you're seeing these things. Oh, it's a really difficult job. And and first of all, you've got to see the stock. Then you've got to be able to coordinate all the ground staff, and you have to remember who's who and who's where and who's doing what. And there's so many things that you have that have to be keep going through your head. And then you've got to fly the airplane and stay safe as well. It's a Massive job. And I think Ashley, because he was doing it from the, the word go and he'd been working under aeroplanes as a ground crew before we even started doing aerial mustering. He had such a deep understanding of it already that he, I was, I would have been way behind the eight ball. It's a real, it's an art. It, it's, um, and seeing Ashley mustering even now, he's a brilliant mustering pilot. And the things that he does and the way he coordinates the muster, it's it's a real pleasure to work underneath. It must have felt so good when you you guys started that business together to have that role. Like you said, when you came to the station, because you didn't have a background with sheep or, and you, but you had done that, you know, that time Jillarooing, the business was already there and everyone very much had their place. This is a brand new business. And it involves aviation. So, so there's an the opportunity for you to be involved there. Um, and, and aviation is kind of your thing. So how did that, I mean, it sounds silly to ask, how did that feel? Cause I'm sure it felt great, but tell me a bit about that time. It was great. And I, and I used to just really enjoy being right in the middle of it. And, you know, I learned so much about the aircraft and I learned so much about running a business. And it was something that I probably wouldn't have tried on my own because I'm not, I'm not gung ho and I'm not brave enough to go out on my own and do something like that. Um, but you know, bringing the kids up in amongst aviation as well was great. We used to take the kids flying and even now they're so blase about going in an aeroplane because they've been in the aeroplane so much with Ashley and I and every now and then they'd vomit and didn't really enjoy the experience and, You'd reckon if mum and dad had an aeroplane, you'd be up there all the time saying, oh, let me fly, let me fly. That They're just so blasé about the whole thing. They really don't, they really don't see the magic that Ashley and I saw back in those days. 
Yeah, I, I can see how that would happen. I'm surprised though they're not calling you up at the moment saying, oh, can you just come pick me up from Perth? You know, I don't want to drive 600 k. Just, just come pick me up or, well, can we, I'm surprised one of them haven't got their license and so they can be like, mum, dad, can I borrow the plane and just pop over to wherever for the weekend? And What an opportunity for them. Yeah, I guess that's what happens when the novelty wears mm-hmm. off or perhaps, like you said, maybe they spent too much time getting sick and that kind of mm. – <laughs> Sounds like it might have taken a while for you to find your feet and find your place in the business, but you're the broader station, like that side of the business. But once this aerial mustering came into play, you had your spot. That You guys don't run that business today, that part of the business. What happened to for that to be the case? It was a just a very gradual decline in the needs of our clients for a number of reasons. Firstly was the Gascoigne Murchison strategy injected some funds into the area so people could build trap yards so they didn't need to muster anymore. So that took away some of the clients. It wasn't helped by the fact that the drought was starting to bite pretty hard and so people firstly didn't have much money and didn't have many animals. And then I guess the third thing was the the wild dog impact. Really, once the wild dog came in, there's no need for aerial musterers because no one's got any small stock anymore. For our listeners who haven't been out to a cattle station before, can you describe what a trap yard is and how that could was able to replace the the requirement for a plane? Sure. So. A trap yard is a, is a yard that you build around a watering point and you have a one-way gate, sort of like a finger-shaped gate that the animal can force its way into to have a drink. And then when they turn around to try and escape, they can't get back out. So the animals are trapped in at the watering points. And it's such an easy way, as long as it hasn't rained, it's such an easy way to gather your animals instead of having to muster them. And mustering, of course, you have to go out in the big paddocks with the aeroplane and the motorbikes and radios and everyone has to or bring all of them into one single area and then yard them. So if it's rained, trap yards are useless because animals can get a drink wherever. But if it hasn't rained, then it's really easy to just set your trap at the trap yards and then go and pick pick up the animals the next day. Are there – I'm thinking when what you've just described as a trap yard, they have those sort of at some of the supermarkets, don't they? Like you've got to push your way through these little waist-height <laughs> yes. little triangle things that are interlock to get into the shops and you can't go back out the entrance. You have to walk around and walk out through the registers. Yeah, that's exactly exactly I, what it is. I wonder who had the idea first, if we had trap yards out here or if there – and then the supermarket saw them and was like, you know, trapping our customers or if some cattleman walked into a supermarket and was like – and then was like, oh, I forgot something in the car, tried to get back out and then was like – Hang on, what's this handy contraption? <laughs> I'd like to think it started at the station level. <laughs> it's oh, an interesting concept. Though. I really hope anybody now, every time they walk through one of those little traps to get into a supermarket, that they think of cattle going mm. to water. Because the aerial mustering business had really played such a massive part in you finding your place in the station and you know, connecting with your, sounds so dramatic, former life, when it started to wind down, did you did you start to worry and think, oh, no, like, well, if we don't have the business anymore, what will my role be now? No, not really because we we adapted the business. So we could see that the hours that the aeroplanes were flying were declining over time. And so we sold a couple of the aeroplanes and instead bought earth-moving equipment. So for a while we were operating 
earth-moving equipment as Murchison Aviation. That was a little bit funny. And um, people would be ringing up expecting an aeroplane, but they got a grader instead. (laughs) (laughs) So we just adapted the business. And by that stage, I suppose, for you, just being able to be involved in the business or a business, it didn't necessarily matter if it was aviation or not. That still was enough to kind of keep you happy and content and working towards a goal. Yeah, absolutely. And I knew that I was really important on the property because I was playing that role and contributing to the business and helping to earn the money rather than just sitting back and going, well, I really don't know what to do here, guys, but, you know, just let me know if you need a hand. (laughs) Meanwhile, I suppose you should say you weren't just – you know, just in case it sounded like that, you weren't just in the, this business or that business. You also had children at the time mm. and were in the schoolroom. Yeah, in the schoolroom, as well as heading out when maybe a windmill needed to be fixed here. I could leave the children with my mother-in-law and then go out and be the assistant for the windmill fixer or mustering time or, you know, any time that I needed to be out on the station, then my mother-in-law would look after the kids and I could go out and be of use on other parts of the property, not help make decisions because I didn't know enough, but, you know, I could lend an extra hand. You mentioned just before with the some of the factors that contributed to the decline or um, of and winding down the aerial mustering business where you had, you know, this that project that resulted in a lot of people putting in trap yards. Also, there was a drought going on, so funds were tight. You know, people were obviously looking to to be as efficient as possible, which also probably really – encourage the push towards trap yards because once they're installed, that's kind of like a one-time cost, I guess. You also mentioned dogs. And I know that dogs have had, you know, the very first story that you wrote for Central Station was about, really about the impact that dogs has had. And and it's had a very significant impact on your business. I think, I mean, we had, we've had a lot of people, um, whether it be on the podcast or, you know, there's a lot of people that have been impacted by dogs, but I feel like it's on a it's not so much that it's different, but as you as you have said in one of your stories, like for five generations, this family ran sheep and you, you guys were here for when dogs really put an end to that. Tell me about that time. It was an incredibly difficult time, particularly for Ashley as the, the number one sheep man in the family, and but also for me because we loved sheep and we really – did do a good job with our sheep business. And some of the bloodlines in the merinos that were here were generations old. They'd, they'd been here at the station forever. And to put something like that aside, you know, like a lot of other management decisions you can control for, but the wild dogs were something that we couldn't defeat. And we'd seen pastoralists further east from us doing the battle with wild dogs before the wild dogs got to our property and the efforts that they'd gone to were absolutely astronomical and they still couldn't win against the wild dogs. So by the time wild dogs started impacting our property, we knew we had to get out of sheep basically because Ashley and I talked about it a lot and we thought the worst thing would be sitting at home knowing that your sheep are being attacked, knowing that they're dying in the paddock and not being able to not being able to find them to put them out of their misery and that sort of thing. Because you know, you're a real animal lover when you run a station. And just the thought of an uncontrollable 
entity coming in and maiming the sheep. If they killed them straight up, it wouldn't be so bad, but they don't. They maim them and then the sheep just die slowly and you couldn't do it. You, it would, it would just mentally destroy us. So we did our last shearing in 2008. And when we turned off that shearing shed for the last time, it was honestly, it was like turning off the life support system for the station. And then we had no animals for a long time, but we, we made money out of mining contracting. So we didn't have to leave the property. Although many times we had the conversation, what are we doing here for goodness sake? But we didn't have to leave. So we had about, I think it was about six years or so where we still had a few rangeland goats that we harvested and there was a handful of cattle on the property and that sort of thing but we really weren't running our stock as a full-time enterprise it had really it was a difficult time and it was a very difficult time for Ashley. How long had you been at Chala when this when the last sheep left? I would say it would have to be about 15 years or so. So I, I can imagine it would be an easy assumption that because you didn't grow up here, you know, you're in a way first generation, you'd only been here 15 years, maybe it wasn't as big of an impact on you. But right now, like you've just, I mean, obviously people can't see, but I can see in your face and your eyes have teared up and you, you're, you know, you're going to be at Reddit, like how emotional this is for you. Like it really is. And it's also very interesting. I've, so I'm sure listeners who, if they've listened to other episodes, in Western Australia, in the Southern Rangelands, which is really a huge, there's like five different regions or six within that, you know, all the way basically from the gas going down. There have been a lot of people over the last, more well, most places, almost everywhere over the last maybe 30 years that have transitioned from sheep to, to cattle. And in a few interviews I've done recently on the show, a lot of that was triggered for those people primarily by the crash of the wool market. Um, also, you know, I suppose declining profitability and, and dogs were a part of it. But when I've spoken to those people and I was like, Oh, were you sad to see the sheep go very quick? Like not even a bat of an eyelid. They're like, nah, but like they were like, bye Felicia to the sheep. You know, they were ready by then. Whereas this is a very, this, this transition for you was not that long ago and you weren't like, okay, yeah, we're going to get rid of sheep. We're going to get into cattle. Like, let's do this. You guys held on like as long as, as long as you could without it. Like you said, I'm sure you probably could have kept them longer, but the impact on the sheep was, you know, you, you couldn't. So it's, I find that, so you're the first person I've really spoken to that was really, is really actually, you know, and like you say in one of your stories, if you could be running sheep today, you would. And it, wasn't just the fact that we got out of sheep. It was the fact that it impacted all of our community as well. So a lot of the neighbours, they sold up and left. And um, so we were surrounded for a while with stations with very little or no people on there. And whereas 20 years ago, it was a really vibrant community. All the station ladies would go into Mount Magnet once, once a week for craft sessions and it parties all the time and when the economy breaks down as it, as much as it did here, it really affects the mental health of the people and it really affects the whole community. And we found that people were nowhere near as inclined to want to go and party when, you know, when they were doing it so tough. So it was not just the breakdown of our business, but the entire erosion 
of our whole community, which has – it's not a community that's a fly-by-night thing. This community is a generational thing. So, you know, Ashley's dad used to be friends with the next-door neighbor's dad. And, you know, they grow up together, and it's this whole history for this whole area that was taken away in, in a bite by those wild dogs. I'm trying to think of that quote. I know I'm not going to get it right, but, you know, they say the first generation, you know, gets the farm, the second one grows it and the third one loses it or something like that. But that's not even the case here because it's not like poor management. It was something so out of your control. I also can't imagine the, I guess, the strain, you know, particularly. So 1888 is when the Doubters first came here. The strain that probably put on, well, just just personally, professionally, but also on your relationship, like that's a really tough time to go through. And also wondering, I guess, like what did you think was going to happen? Like after that, you get rid of sheep, and I mean, really, I w- I'm not, I don't want to say it's all you know and that you couldn't do anything else because you guys are very bright and forward thinking and innovative, and I'm sure you are always going to land on your feet. But we started campaigning really heavily to build the dog-proof cell fence around this area. And so a lot of our energy then was uh, taken out of the sheep running business but channeled into the dog control business and trying to convince government that they needed to invest some money into this area to build a dog con- a dog-proof in- exclosure so that all of the sheep properties within this area could be protected. And so we thought, you know, it's okay. We've sold our sheep, but we'll get that fence built and then maybe in about three or four years' time, we'll be able to get sheep back again. So we didn't understand that when we sold the last sheep, it was final and we would, we always had that hope that we'd be able to get the sheep back. And that's, you look at the entrance of our property, there's a big frame standing over the old shearing shed. And that is a monument of time because that big frame was put up when we thought, okay, well, the old shearing shed needs replacing, so we'll put this frame up because there was a big crane in town. We'll put the frame up, and then after shearing next year, we'll demolish the old shearing shed and rebuild it. And it's never got any further than having that frame up because we – we and we haven't taken the frame down either, and we haven't destroyed the old shearing shed because we've never really wanted to say for certain we're definitely not going to run sheep back here at Challa. So it's always that little hope in your mind that maybe we'll get rid of the dogs and maybe we can bring the sheep back. And even now we talk about maybe we could bring the sheep back. So was the, I suppose, was the plan, okay, like we can't keep running as we are, like we're losing too many sheep. Like I suppose I I haven't asked you explicitly what was the impact of the dogs. Like I'm guessing if it's gotten to the point where you're destocking all of your sheep, it's not that you're losing, you know, one a week or not one a month, you know, like what, I mean, you don't have to give me specific numbers, but what, what were the kind of things that you were seeing when you go out for a drive? And we, we got out before that happened so we could see what was coming. And we made the decision that after shearing in this year, we're going to sell all of our sheep because we couldn't guarantee that they would still be alive in 12 months time. So it was really before the carnage happened and it wouldn't have been that long after we sold our sheep before a lot of wild dogs moved into the area, not just a few, a lot moved in. And we had goats in the area for a while after the sheep were gone. So we were still harvesting the goats and managing them and running them. And I used to ride the horses around the paddocks and, you know, go for big long trail rides and see mobs of goats here and mobs of goats there. 
And then over the period of about a week, the goats disappeared. And that's when you knew the dogs were here. I'm just riding around. I'm thinking, I haven't seen any goats for ages. And that's because, and that was a sure sign, even though we couldn't see the dogs, we knew that because the goats were gone, the dogs were here. Goats are really smart. It's funny. Well, it's not funny. Uh, it's a, it's a real testament that you, I suppose, made that decision to get out before it got to that point. And it's, I guess that to me, that's highlighting the impact of the stories you were hearing from your community and your neighbors further east. And did you, did you also, I guess, was it just word of mouth and hearing? I, I mean, it's not, I guess when you're hearing this from your neighbors and your communities, you're not just hearing, Oh, we've lost X amount of sheep, which you can then translate into an impact on the business. You would be hearing in their voices, in their stories, the impact on them themselves. Did you also ever end up going out anywhere and like seeing other, what other people's places or seeing pictures of the damage? Or was it really just like a verbal, you know, that, that person to person communication that told you all you needed to know? Ashley probably had a lot more to do with that than I did because I was at home with the kids on School of the Air. And so at School of the Air camps, we would talk about wild dogs with the people to the east and they'd say, Oh, we've, been camping out in the paddock near the sheep and we're trying to keep all the wild dogs away and we camped out every night and the bloody dogs still come in and kill the sheep. And, you know, the stories like that were what I was getting, whereas Ashley was probably seeing more of the physical um, evidence and the physical um, results of the wild dogs. The the early move, you know, to get out of sheep before it got to that point also makes me think of, the the best you know practice I suppose drought management of destocking and and uh, moving on your livestock before you get to the point where there are no feed and you can't do anything with them. So I just that's just a little interesting parallel that kind of popped up in my mind there, which really I suppose speaks further to the and and um, highlights the management style that you guys have of like act early. That's a you know that's a really good point because. If there hadn't been rain by the time we were shearing and if there wasn't enough feed to carry the sheep through for 12 months, then the rams wouldn't be put out. And it was, it was that long-term forward thinking, have, can we carry the stock through for the next 12 months or not based on the feed? And then, of course, Ashley and I had to make the decision, can we carry the stock through for the next 12 months based on the dogs? And we didn't think we could. I just... Mm. I can't imagine being faced with that decision. Like, it's a, there's no nice, eloquent way to say it. It's a shit situation to be in. It was a shit situation to be in. You have made the most of it though, I suppose. You, you said you guys ended up being destocked for, was it eight years? No, about, about six years or so, really. Don't Mm. mind me. I'm just embellishing everything. (laughs) Don't worry. I'll add a few years on to how long you're destocked and I'll just um, shave a few years off your age. Thank you. Yeah, Yeah, that's all right. Yeah. Steph maths. At some point, you guys did bring animals back onto Chowa, but they weren't sheep. Tell me about that. We had run cattle here at Chowa Station, not in my time, but probably about 40 or 50 years ago, there was a mob of cattle up the top end of Chowa because there's a nice bit of grass country up there. And doing your maths, you look at Chowa Station and you think, okay, well, you can run 8,000 was was the recommended stocking rate for Challa, and we quite often ran lower than that. When we looked at the numbers of cattle that we were going to be able to run, it was only going to be a few hundred, maybe 400 on Challa, and that's not enough to support a family and put 
kids through boarding school on. Back then, cattle weren't weren't worth a great deal of money and you can only run 400 because cattle don't eat what sheep eat and and cattle also need a lot more food than sheep do. So sheep you can run on the saltbush country and they'll graze here and graze there, but cattle really only do well on grass country. And we had a little section of grass country up the top end of the station that would sustain about 400 cows. Um, so it and as I said, the price of cattle wasn't that great back then. So it would just be a, a hobby. It would never be run as a standalone business. So if 400 cattle weren't enough to be viable, what, what were your options then? Well, but- we let it simmer for a while. We just sort of, um, put everything on hold for a few years, kept the windmills going, kept the fences strained up and made sure everything was all right still. And then the opportunity came up for us to buy the station next door, which is called Windermurra Station. Now, that property plus our property is a great size to run cattle on. And so that was what gave us that big boost into running cattle and the whole property. The fact that we were able to double the size of the place, Windermurra Station had run cattle traditionally plenty of times because they had the same big band of grass that was in the top end of our property ran diagonally down through Windermurra Station. So we knew there was going to be heaps of grass there for the cows and we knew that we could make it now with the doubling of the property and the and bringing in all of that great Windermurra country, we knew we could make a, a go of running a cattle enterprise here. I bet you thought in sometime in that six years when you were destocked that you would, you know, I'm sure you were questioning whether or not you'd ever have animals come back, but also I'd bet you didn't think you'd be doubling the size of the place. Like that sounds like something that you aspire to, like in a good, you know, in good times and a run of good seasons, you get some real coin in the bank, you know, times are good, let's be bigger and expand. It doesn't sound, uh, like the, the natural progression when you've destocked and times are really hard, but the opportunity came up and it was a really, difficult negotiation to buy the place next door as well because the people that owned it had gone broke so the bank had take they hadn't taken possession the bank technically owned it but they hadn't taken possession the company had become insolvent disappeared off the stock exchange so we had a situation where there was basically nobody owned this property although you know if you really dug down you could say the bank owned it so what we had to do i had to buy the debt off the bank and then I had to sell that debt or sell the station to Ashley in order. It was a really difficult, complicated procedure and it happened just before the leases were renewed in 2015. So there was that enormous time pressure on us because if we hadn't been able to take ownership by the 30th of June 2015, the lease would have reverted to unallocated crown land and that would have been a much worse scenario for us because then we would have all this unmanaged country right next door and the dogs would breed up and I know there was a couple of camels on the place when we bought it and they would, wouldn't be managed and it would just be a disaster. So it was almost like we were in a situation where it was much better, even if we had to go into debt, much better to buy the station next door than not. I love that I'm like, oh, I bet you never thought you'd be, you know, buying another place in these times. Bet you never thought you'd be selling your husband a station. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? For a few for a few moments there, I was trying to double the price, but he wouldn't come at it either. Well, you said in your in the first episode we did with you that you once bought a horse, which was a bit of a 
potential divorce horse. I, I'm just wondering, like, please tell me that you were like, I will sell you this station for this price or you can have like this much of a discount if you let me have like 10 extra horses or something. I did feel that power, that heady rush of power for a few brief minutes until I signed it over to him. <laughs> oh, I just, I, I guess, you know, where there's a will, there's a way and yet things aren't always straightforward, are they? Yeah, and a lot, of people, a lot of people said we couldn't do it. I remember talking to someone in Deepherd and they, and they were saying, Oh, look, you, you won't be able to do this. It's, you're not going to get it through. And we found a really good property lawyer and he said, yep, we can do this. And we ran with that and we trusted him and he made it happen for us. But it wasn't just a, such a simple thing. Oh, buy the station next door. Okay, mum and dad, give us some money. We're going to buy the station next door. It didn't happen like that. It was like this fantastic opportunity presented itself, but all these barriers that we had to overcome. And um, it was such a triumphant victory when we actually took possession of the place. And we had a big party. We called it a housewarming party, but that's when we burnt down the old homestead. It was an old wreck of a homestead, completely wrecked. We called it a housewarming party and just lit a match. Oh, I wish I had been there for that. Also, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge the look of joy on your face and the energy in your voice, like the the palpable change in like, as I say, in the room. We're actually in a little makeshift cubby in within a bigger room, the things we do to bring good audio quality to our listeners. It's it's quite a – I mean, we our listeners, we're going along on a journey with you, but just recording this episode, there's a, there's a bloody journey in the emotions, it, it, isn't that, there? And that's just the way it's always been here. You know, you, you know that after the bad times, there's going to be good times and all these amazing opportunities come up and you go, yeah, go on, let's try. Let's just have a crack at that and let's just see what happens. Um, it, it's, and all credit to Ashley too, because he was determined to make this, make the purchase happen. And he's, he's really game and he's really bold moving forward in his business decisions and so yeah he he um he pushed a lot of it and I was there the support person making the phone calls and getting all the paperwork in order and making sure it all happened but it wasn't it was such a victory and a team effort so I just feel the need to just say and he said all credit to Ashley but you I don't want you to underplay the role that you whether or not you recognize it that you would have had in this too like you guys are a are a team and look what you've done together. And it was a big decision to buy the property because it had been complete, it was completely derelict, derelict when we bought it. All the windmills had been destroyed by the previous manager. The, there was not a windmill working on the property. There was no fencing. There was the Murchison Regional Vermin Council fence or the old rabbit proof fence. That was the boundary. And then all the internal fencing was flat. No windmills working. And I said to Ash, there's that much work involved in getting Windermara up and running. There's only the two of us to do it. I really, we need to think long and hard about this. But you know the clincher for me? There's this beautiful lake on Windermara Station where you can go water skiing after a big rain. And I said, look, I know it's going to be a lot of work. It's, it's, it's huge for us to pull this on. But there's that lake there. And if we can go to that lake whenever we want, I reckon it'll be worth it. <laughs> it sounds like the epitome of a fixer-upper. Yeah, definitely. Renovator's delight for sure. I I wonder how this was for you because, so as we've established, you know, the family had been running sheep for a long, long, long time. Now you move to cattle. 
this is something new for both you and Ashley, whereas you, you said at the beginning of the episode, you know, this wasn't your area of expertise. This was Ashley's whole life and his whole family's history. Did that kind of, I suppose, like not, not that it's a competition or anything, but kind of level out the playing field or just, I don't know, change things a little bit because it was something new that you were both doing together? It, it, that's, that's it. It's not leveling the playing field, but it's doing something together, which was the brilliant part. And because I'm such a horsey girl, cows, horses, same size, four legs, look, look very similar. So I'm like, this is, I'm in my element. Cows and horses just go together so well. And even though neither of us knew a lot about running cattle, we'd both had a little bit to do with it. We knew some of the basics and we reached out to other people in the industry who were running cattle successfully and we said, well, what do you do and how do you do it and what do you think of this? And we talked to our stock agent and what sort of cattle do you reckon we should get and, you know, where should we get them from and, you know, how do you reckon we should do it? And we pulled in all the information that we could get from the people already doing it successfully and we made it our own business. And so it was the two of us working together towards this goal and that was so satisfying because it wasn't something that Ashley knew all about and I didn't know anything about. It was both of us on this journey together and it's been so um, satisfying building the cattle business together and I've had an equal input. You know, we, we always talk about our strategy and our plans and I'll say this and he'll say that and I'll say, well, what about this? And he says, well, what about that? And together we make the decisions and it's it's really I'm quite enjoying it now. I can I can tell mm-hmm. by the look on your face. Tell me what it's like changing from sheep to cattle. What what are the big differences that you've noticed? Well, I guess physically the big things are the fences. All of our fences <laughs> held sheep in and now all of our fences have got to hold cattle. So we've done a lot of fencing on the boundary to make all of our fences so tall enough so that cattle can't jump over it. I thought you were going to say, well, physically the big things and then say other cows because they're bigger. <laughs> Sorry, I totally thought that's where you are going. No, but yeah, fencing, gosh, yeah. that's a... And your watering points. So we had trap yards built at our watering points, exactly the right size for sheep and goats to go in. And you look at all of your trap yards and we've had to take a lot of them down so that the cattle can get in there and get a drink. And all of our sheep infrastructure, beautiful sets of yards out in the strategically positioned for our sheep work. They just sit there as decorations now and now we're building cattle yards everywhere. So we had to buy portable panels and we had to use portable cattle yards for a while and then strategically build cattle yards. And we're still now, we've got plans for building cattle trap yards on every watering point, but they can be converted to hold sheep and goats if we ever get back into, there's always that, if we get back into small stock. And also the size of the troughs. And the amount of water that the cattle drink and how many animals you can have on a certain watering point is limited by the amount of water that that windmill can supply to those animals. So big changes um, and everything's gone from small to bigger, but everything's also a lot more fun for me with the horses. Talk about finding a silver lining. Going from sheep to cattle, do you still kind of have the same number of people for the same amount of time or has that been a, a bit of a change too? On the still, social. still just um, not as many people are running cattle around here. So 20 years ago, all of the stations around here, here had sheep, but some stations haven't changed over to cattle. Some stations are still completely destocked. And so 
it has made a difference in terms of our neighbourhood, of our community. We've got a lot of neighbours have left and we've got new people in that we don't know. There's some stations that have managers in that we they turn over regularly so you don't get to know them very well. So it, it has changed the the way the community looks. Uh, we're really lucky in the fact that we were able to buy Windermurra and become a standalone cattle property. So lucky. And Ashley will tell you it's good management, not good luck. And he always says, it's not, you know, the harder I work, the luckier I get. And there is a, a huge element of hard work and determination in that too. When, when we had sheep, it was basically the family running the property and we got in the shearing team for shearing and we had a, a mustering crew come in. And the mustering crew was quite often Indigenous people from town who had come out here for years and years and years and um, they were really good stockmen and came out and helped. And then, of course, no people for a few years. And then we, we started with cattle and you just need your mustering crew, your ground crew for cattle. So we would bring in – there's usually about 10 people come into Chalice, some paid, some unpaid for our mustering time and we – go flat out for a few weeks mustering and then a lot of those people leave and then we're left with Ashley and myself and a couple of other people to process the cattle and we do a lot of training with our heifers as well. So after the cattle are mustered and some have gone off to the sales, we bring in a heap of horsey ladies and all the horsey ladies come and train their horses on our cattle and so the horses get trained and the people are happy and the cattle get trained as well and so you get your heifers that you put out in the paddock for the next, well, for the next generation of breeding cows have been really well handled by people. And so they're not dangerous. They're nice and quiet and they understand what to do when they see a person. There is a very uh, recognizable photo of Chala that if anyone looks at your Facebook or Instagram and we've posted on our account before, that I think also signifies another big change. So there's, there's a bunch of mustering buggies so like little suzukis and just little buggies i'm guessing you didn't need those buggies when you are when you were mustering sheep no you just muster sheep on a motorbike a nice two-wheel motorbike and if a if a sheep comes charging towards you they see the motorbike and they usually turn and go the other way but when you're working with cattle on a two-wheel motorbike it's okay when the cattle are nice and friendly and happy and quiet and they're compliant but you get some of those scrub bulls that haven't seen a human for a long time and and it's really really dangerous to be on a motorbike so we needed to have the buggies because when we first bought Windermurray it was supposed to be destocked but we took 160 scrub bulls off that property in the first few years and we were dealing with these huge ferocious wild bulls that had never seen a human and they were fighting for their lives and you needed to have a buggy to be safe it was uh, such a change and it's almost like the sheep is you know you could bring the kids in the yard with the sheep and they can go on a motorbike and they can help do the sheep work and do, do a sheep drive but you certainly wouldn't let the kids in the yard with some of the cattle that we had and um, you've got to be safe by being in your buggies and it's just like nobody's going to go on a motorbike around some of those things. Our cattle now have improved a lot and so – but we still don't ride motorbikes around them. I guess you're used to being in a buggy now. Like I'm driving in my buggy. I've got my lunchbox next to me. I've got my radio on. I'm sort of quite comfortable and happy in my buggy now. I think as all of us get older, we start to think smarter, not harder. And, and the creature comforts mean a lot more to you when you're, you know, when it, you're a little bit sore or when you get out of bed in the morning, you're a little bit slower. But when you're young and bulletproof, you know, yeah, 
things well, definitely change. Although I did used to really enjoy sheep work on horseback as well as, and, I, and that's carried on to the cattle work on horseback. So that's something that I've kept constant the whole time. It's, uh, it's just any stock work on horseback's brilliant. I want to change pace a little bit now and jump forward to uh, the last few years where you've actually, I mean, as if you don't have enough to do, come on, Debbie, you have been doing a Master of Research or Master's. This is a conversation we've been having off air. We're like, we both have a Master or Master's degree. Don't know how to say it, though. (laughs) See, degrees aren't everything. In environmental science, how did this come about? How do you... Yeah, how do you do this? It was another opportunity that presented itself, just a a conversation I had at a meeting with one of the people who is leading wild dog research in Western Australia. She mentioned to me that they were looking for students to do research into wild dog control and people and that sort of thing in this area. And I thought, oh, well, you know, I know a lot about wild dogs because Ashley – has been consumed by wild dogs for 20 years and it's like every conversation around our kitchen table has involved wild dogs and we've had chair of the National Wild Dog people come here and we've had all sorts of meetings and there's so much wild dog talk has happened in this inside these walls that this was an opportunity for me to record some of that for history and um, so I thought, well, okay, well, I'll apply. They probably won't accept me because I haven't done uni for 30 years and I've really got no idea what I'm doing, but they don't need to know that. So I'll, I'll have a crack. And I put my application in and I was accepted to do this research project through the University of New England. And that was a really nice thing to, to replace what I'd been doing in the schoolroom. Because when you're teaching your own children, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of things that go on in your head and you finish teaching and then you think, right, now what am I going to think about? And to be able to move, turn my attention to this really interesting and difficult project has presented me with a huge challenge that at times it's been really, really difficult and it's, it's been almost at the point where you go, oh, why did I even bother doing this? But now I'm almost ready to submit the final thesis. It's just like, yes, what an achievement. Okay, kids, look, look what mum's done. You guys can do something like this as well. Don't let anything stop you. We've covered an awful lot in this episode and it really has been a ride. There's been highs and lows. There's been a lot of uncertainty at times that you, you don't know what's coming and what's around the corner. And I think the fact that you guys are here today speaks to there's, there's, resilience there that to still, I mean, you'd have to be resilient to still be here. So looking back on this period of your life, what would you say are the major takeaway lessons? I would say it's work hard and trust, trust in the, in the process and trust that the future is going to work out okay. And as long as you've got your core values of working hard and, you know, making good decisions, then it doesn't matter which area your business goes or which area your life goes, it'll be okay if you stick to your core principles. 